kind of like wonder what are they what do they really talk about off camera right they'll never know they'll never know what we do before okay here we go Mill. some viewers may find the following video disturbing viewer discretion is advised It's Thursday night, and that means only one thing, Amelia. What's the buzz? Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, It's been a, a funky day today. It's been yeah. a really funky day today. A good kind of funk. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a good kind of funk. The kind of funk you want to jam down to George Clinton and the Funkadelics, that kind of funk. <laughs> good day. Really good day. Giving away my age, doctor. <laughs> I am giving away my age. This is the Wrestling with the Future Radio Network. I am Mad Dog Discipio, joined by Amelia, the Pitbull Chapman. And welcome to What's the Buzz tonight? Inside the mind of a serial killer. And to walk us through this muck and mire is Dr. Anthony Tobias. He is professor of psychiatry, Rutgers University Medical School, and Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. He oversees the Department of Psychiatry at Rutgers University Behavioral Health. And he is joined tonight by a young lady, Dr. Ellie Diani, is a third-year med student at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. She completed her junior thesis on psychology of cult behavior. Young lady, we're going to talk to you tonight because we've got a show coming up actually next week. Um, and we are we are delving into the cults. We're going, we're, we're going to deal with the, the Heaven's Gate cult first, and then the, we're going to start with that one. And then we're just going to, uh, you know, trudge through the muck and mire. Uh, Dr. Viani uh, is, as I said, third-year med student. She has completed her thesis in, in, cult behavioral, um, in cult behavior and is considering a career in forensic psychiatry. Um, bless your heart, young lady. You got your hands full, kid. I got news <laughs> for you. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk to um, get this right right out from Jump Street. We are going deep into the twisted world of the serial killer, Doctor. I have to tell you, for the last couple of weeks, uh, three or four weeks actually, we've been delving into un unsolved murders uh, and serial killers. We found an interesting connection. Um, many of the unsolved murders that we came across were done by serial killers who later became, I should say, people who later became serial killers. I want to ask you in your professional opinion, is there a kind of uh, a juxtaposition between the two? Is there some link in the brain that snaps that you go from being this unknown to where you want people now to know that this is your handiwork for lack of a better word yeah i mean we can start off with the basic psychology to answer your question you know 
um, we can go back to psychology 101, and the first step would be some disintegration of what many would refer, refer to as a superego. So that part of ourselves, that part of our personality, that is usually our, our, our conscience that tells us what to do and what not to do right from wrong, for whatever reason, uh, just doesn't work correctly. And that's something that evolves over time for many, many reasons. Um, when you then add in that element of narcissism, that need to be heard, that legacy, um, that, uh, that answers your question in terms of what an individual may then consider to be their legacy um, along that continuum. We just did a show, Doctor, on Richard Ramirez, the, uh, the infamous Night Stalker. Uh, he had committed prior to going public, if you will, uh, he committed some five to seven murders, depending on which number you're willing to believe. Uh, certainly more than a couple. Um, there came a time that he wanted himself known. But it's interesting, in Ramirez's case, there wasn't a particular M.O. that the police could tag him with. He, he was literally all, literally and figuratively all over the place. How do you explain that kind of behavior in such a narcissistic being? That is a great question. And, and uh, unfortunately, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, part of what might explain that is what is often referred to as the cooling-off period. Uh, and actually, I'm going to defer to uh, Ellie to just comment on that. Um, and it really does get to the general question of what constitutes a serial killer. Um, so typically, to define like serial murderers, uh, serial killers will kill someone and then have a cooling off period in which they, they are stagnant. They don't kill because they had the relief from um, the kill. Right. Um, some murderers don't have that. I think in terms of Richard Ramirez, his, his killings are unique in that it's not just his antisocial personality or other traits, but he also had temporal lobe epilepsy, which led to him having hallucinations and and thinking that he was in contact with Satan. Um, so that makes his case unique. Uh, interesting. I have to tell you, I was in contact with the FBI and uh, and the website, the FBI.gov. Um, what they tell me is it's interesting. Uh, what they said and what the website says are actually two different things, but they're kind of in line. Uh, they define a serial killer as typically a person who kills three or more individuals with the murders taking place over a more than 30-day period, including a significant time in between. This is that cooling-off period you're, you're speaking of. The FBI defines serial murder as a series of three consecutive murders committed by separate, uh, as separate events usually by one killer with a specific motive and or agenda, but sometimes may include another individual. So in the case of, for example, doctor, a case we just did, the Zodiac, um, Arthur Lee Allen was identified as the prime suspect while he was alive. After he passed away, 
the family gave the FBI and uh, the police department in San Francisco and Concord, California, permission to investigate Arthur Lee Allen's garage. They found the Zodiac hood. They found Zodiac notes. They found rope. They found um, uh, 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 grommets. They found, um, oh, Lord, what else did they? Oh, they found um, a, 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 the, the Zodiac tourniquet. All these were identifying signatures of the Zodiac. There's one thing that they didn't find, however. The DNA didn't match up. He had all the significant evidence, but the DNA did not match up, leading people now, after his passing, to believe that perhaps there was more than one Zodiac. Put yourself in that mindset. Try to explain this to me. Well, I mean, um, depending on where we're coming to the equation, um, Arthur Lee Allen, for some reason, could have decided not to act alone. And um, we have no way of telling why he did what he did if he did take on a partner. Uh, it could be because the FBI was getting close and he needed um, to actually throw them off his trail. It could have been that he may have been incarcerated for another reason unrelated to the serial murders. Um, and, and who knows where he picked up a second partner. So there could be multiple reasons why an individual might actually uh, not act alone. Uh, but um, my gut says is that at the root of that would have been his not getting caught. And um, so the first place I would look to investigate further is how close the FBI or uh, uh, some other uh, detective agency got to him as to uh, why and perhaps when he incorporated a partner in his crimes. Yeah. Amelia, questions for Dr. Yes. Diani or Dr. Tobiah? Yeah. Uh, well, my question would be uh, a lot of them that I've noticed that I've read up on is that they try to blame their childhood or how they were raised or their parents, the way they were so strict. Why is that that they try to blame their parents? Well, I, I think when we look at adult uh, pathology, we often can trace it back to early childhood experiences, both positive and negative. Uh, and for those who uh, demonstrate adult psychopathology, uh, certainly uh, early childhood experiences, especially traumatic experiences, are often the root uh, to explain why we do what we do as adults. And that being the case, uh, those closest to you are going to bear the, uh, the blame, uh, unfortunately. And uh, especially in the U.S., that's usually not only the parents, but more specifically the, the mother figure. Um, we do know that when we look at individuals who are from this demographic we're discussing, uh, the data, the uh, medical literature does show that about 50% actually had some form of psychological abuse during their childhood, uh, about 35% physical abuse and 25% sexual abuse, and up towards 20% neglect. Uh, so there's no doubt that early childhood experiences do weigh in in contributing to uh, adult pathologic behavior, including psychopathy. Doctor, how prevalent is the Oedipus complex in the mindset of the serial killer? Well, I mean, um, the answer I'm gonna provide you right now is very biased because I actually um, am a proponent uh, of Freudian and even Jungian psychology. Uh, I think that it's important even as an MD to teach uh, a future 
a group of medical students, the basic psychology. Um, we, here's the bottom line here, and I'll, and I'll put this in, you know, 2022 language. Uh, we learn how to behave as adults, especially interpersonally, from what we get modeled to us at an early age. And that, that first model behavior is from our mom and dad or primary caregivers. Uh, that's yeah. just the way things turn out. So there is something to this idea of the Oedipal complex that that age around five or so where, you know, hey, we discover that we're the same sex as our dad and we're not as our mom, as the male. And of course, the opposite often referred to as the electric complex uh, as a little girl. So uh, again, uh, early model behavior does predict uh, future behavior, it does. And uh, it's not perfect. And certainly there are other confounders, there's other variables, uh, but there's still something to that. Amelia, questions? Uh, and also I've noticed that a lot of them like to leave behind like either their mark uh, on their bodies or they want to say, hey, or send something in the mail or to the newsroom or something like that. Why is that that they want their 15 minutes of fame or is it that they just want to be noticed finally? So, Come on, Dr. Ellie. Yeah, <laughs> at least going to defer that one to me. So again, there uh, in psychiatry, we learn very quickly that there's no simple answer to very complex behaviors. And this is a very complex behavior. Yeah. Uh, however, having said that, um, there, there is some evidence that suggests that individuals who do this do it as a form of control. Uh, and yeah. there, it does feed into their narcissism, this idea that they're special and they could only be understood by individuals as special as they are. So uh, it's a test. Um, uh, can, does the FBI, uh, does the detective take the bait? Are they as special? Um, and we've seen this play out not only in real life, but of course in fan fiction as well. Sure. The point where the individual, that is the narcissistic serial killer, does believe that perhaps the detective is as special as they are, that's referred to as twinship transference. And we see this in movies play out where that serial killer looks into the eyes of the detective and says something along the lines of, you know, you and I, we're a lot alike. Uh, that's twinship transfer. Well, and that could I, be the, the product of this. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, doctor, I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with the case, but when uh, John Wayne Gacy was arrested, uh, or brought, actually when he was brought in for questioning before they even arrested him, he said to the detective questioning him, you know, I'm the smartest guy in this room. And there were only two guys in that room. He's quoted as saying that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting statement to make when there's only two people around. Yep. Yep. It's kind of a ballsy statement to make when <laughs> there's two people around. Quite I would frankly. say that. Yeah. Um, and what, here's what the I guy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Amelia, go ahead. <laughs> and what I don't understand either is something as far as like these women fall in love with these men that are in jail or incarcerated for. Oh, wait a minute. Amelia, don't go down that rabbit hole yet. Cause <laughs> I, we got a whole, I, you know, that we got me. a whole film clip to show. Hold on. <laughs> that <laughs> we got a film like... <laughs> clip to show on that one. Not strange, um, but <laughs> I'll tell you what, you know, when you look at the, a case like the Zodiac, for example, mm -hmm. He wanted people, he clearly wanted people to know that it was his work. The first thing he did, doctor, was he sent notes to the television and radio stations, but refused to identify himself. Only he would say, this is the Zodiac speaking. 
And that would be it. We know what his voice sounds like. We think we know who he is now, but maybe not because the DNA doesn't match up. But in a case like that where there's clearly a psychotic or split mindset somewhere along the way, you've got to ask yourself, what's the motive for a guy to take credit for something but yet not want to be seen? While on the other hand, other people like Ramirez wanted his face all over the news. And I think the answer lies in the idea of control. I mean, we saw that play out with the with Zodiac too, with the ciphers. Um, you know, he was he was again um, tempting. He was goading uh, the FBI in terms of solve the equation, find out who I am. So, uh, uh, from that perspective, yeah. it, it is consistent. It did appear to be uh, an act of control, no doubt. Yeah, Amelia, remember what the uh, the Zodiac said. He said, in San Francisco, the blue meanies almost had me. Yes, mm-hmm. almost had he him. He used that particular terminology, the, the blue meanies almost yes. had me. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, Dr. Diani, um, that I want to bring you into this conversation here because you've been way too quiet for way too long. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I, I have <laughs> what you were just talking about, the um, like wanting to be important and wanting to be in the spotlight. Um when Gary Ridgway was originally under investigation and people didn't really know who he was and the police were like desperate to find out more information about who he could be or how they could better track him. Um, Ted Bundy actually from, from death row reached out to the police and said like, I'll talk to you, I'll help you. Um, and it's hypothesized now that Ted Bundy just really wanted to be back in the spotlight. And he was like angry that someone else was killing and getting notoriety for yeah. something that he had been known for. Many years ago, I knew a guy very briefly, very briefly. His name was Gary Ridgway. Does that name strike a bell with you? The Green River Killer. The Green River Killer, yeah. I knew him for about five minutes in my life. That was five minutes too long. Um, Last count uh, before his arrest, more than 70 plus victims at that point. Um, I'm going to show a little, uh, we got a couple of, uh, by the way, doctor, um, doctors, I should say, we have a section of the show we call show and tell. Yay. It's Amelia's favorite <laughs> section. Favorite she likes to look at pictures. No, I don't. That's some, some of them. And I she do. still colors inside the lines. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Which shows a, a psychiatrist would have a ball with that one. Well, my psychiatrist and, has helped me. <laughs> Well, that's before you knew Dr. Tobiah. Right. I want I want everyone to, to look at this, but before I do, I must legally do this. Some viewers may find the following video disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. Having got the legalities out of the way, let's go into it. We're going to let this speak for itself. That is Jack the Ripper finally identified as Dr. Michael Maybrick. During the course of this presentation, you will see, you will see the perpetrator, you will see the evidence, and you will see the victim in all its gruesomeness. This is John Wayne Gacy, smiling oh, at his so arrest. So happy, wasn't he? So happy, yeah, look at him. 
Not so happy anymore. Five hours before he was executed. Oh, young boy. Old male, old young male. You will see more of her tonight. David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam, with more than 21 kills to his credit. He is still very much alive, housed in upstate New York. They are a handful of his victims. Here are the rest. Very young. This is Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler with a dozen kills to his credit. Wow, young. Actually, 13. Here's Ted Bundy. That evil look. They called him the handsome stranger. And here are all 39 of his victims. All college students, I believe. All college students, every one of them. Cannibal killer Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most notorious. Look at that, all nails. Look at that. And yep. This is Dr. Harold Shipman. They call him Friendly Fred. Looks like an ordinary man. Yeah. These are some of his victims. All elderly women. That's what I was going to say, all elderly. Every one of them. C.C. Holmes, all, I'm, I'm sorry, H.H. Holmes, also known as uh, Herman Webster Mudgett. He looks like a salesman. <laughs> he was an evil bastard, is what he yeah. was. <laughs> and killed more than 22 people that we know about. Wow. Although he claimed more at the time, oh, yeah, a great majority of them were children. Very young children, innocent little victims. Yeah. Sadly, children are often the victims. Very sadly. This is Ed Gain. This is the man who inspired Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, Let God. me warn people. I need to make a warning right now. Before we go any further, what you are looking at are real. That is a real skull. That is a real face. That is a face detached from the body. That belt is made of human skin, as are those gloves. I warn you that the image you will see next is absolutely gruesome. Oh, my gosh. You are looking at human faces sewn together by Ed Gain. He used to wear them. He would wear them, and then once he took it off, he would sew it to the next. Is that like a vest? It was interesting that that, that sewn face blanket, for lack of a better oh, word, yeah. is how they caught Ed Gain. They identified the victims through their faces on that rather macabre piece of artwork. 
Dr. Tobias is going to have a ball with this one. <laughs> Pedro Lopez, the child of the devil, with more than 350 kills, 90% of them children. Almost all of them children. Innocent children, again. Always. Oh my gosh, that looks like the same person, but it's not. You're looking at Edmund Kemper, and next to him in the color picture is Cameron Britton. He is an actor who currently plays Edmund Kemper on a Netflix film. I had to do a double take. <laughs> I'm not going to promote the film, no. but there you are. And there are the victims. This is the monster of Florence, also known for inspiring Hannibal from Silence of the Land. He was a real guy. There you go. Those are the victims. And there are more. And more. Oh, my goodness. And one more. Right oh, there. It's like left in the daylight. And there's Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. And you will see his handiwork right here. Oh, my goodness. There are more than 40, there are 45 women just in that photo. His kill by his own admission and based on the forensics done by the FBI, more than 70 victims can, can be attributed to the Green River Killer Gary Ridgeway. Um, not something to be proud of, but no. they are the numbers. My goodness. Doctor, talk to me. You've seen some pretty gruesome stuff. Um, what kind, where is the disconnect in the mind that does this? There's gotta be some short circuit. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what terminology I, I should use for lack of a better word. I'll say like a short circuit somewhere. Right. And, and if we were to look at this with um, studies such as functional MRI, uh, we begin to localize at the cerebellum. Uh, and we see uh, decreased volume uh, around an area of specific cells within that brain structure, the cerebellum, referred to as the mirror neurons. Um, and many believe the mirror neurons are where empathy uh, is localized. Mm -hmm. uh, so the discussion begins there. It's unfortunately very superficial. We're at the very early stages of that research. Uh, but when we begin to talk about that short circuit um we're thinking cerebellum and we're thinking the mirror neurons and we're thinking the psychological term of empathy which clearly uh, is lacking um and certainly uh, uh i think that point resonates greatly with the uh, segment you just showed it's interesting uh that several years ago after the death after the death of gary ridgeway he donated his body to the prison doctors and the hospital associated with the prison. And they did something interesting. They took his brain and I'm sure doctor, you're familiar with this procedure where they literally sliced it and, and attached it to slides 
uh, kind of like a giant microscope slide. You're familiar with what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They found an interesting, they made an interesting finding upon the dissection of his brain. They took a normal, a, a, a quote-unquote normal brain and compared it to the slides of Gary Ridgway's brain. They found a very, very significantly decreased temporal lobe. Explain to me the significance of the temporal lobe in the mindset of a serial killer. And we're we're sure you're talking about Ridgway and not Jeffrey Dahmer? No, Gary Ridgway. Ridgway? Yeah, Dahmer, Dahmer also. I understand. I know where you're going with that, but the Jeffrey, yes. um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer was the second of these, the two cases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, the temporal lobe, um, we're looking at different brain structures that again are implicated in emotions and empathy. Uh, and then there's also circuitry feedback, uh, connecting not only the multiple lobes, obviously, but the one that we would be most interested in is the frontal lobe. Um, again, where the idea of um, um, that protective measure of or from impulsivity, so executive planning um, from the frontal lobe. So uh, yeah. not only emotions, uh, not only empathy with the temporal lobe, but the loops and the different circuitry, neurocircuitry, yeah. it has the um, uh, feedback from the frontal lobe itself yeah. So important when it comes to protecting against impulsivity and therefore impulsive acts. Doctor, we have a question from our audience. Yes. Uh, identified as I want my slaw. I know this gentleman is <laughs> part of is a regular, yeah, uh, a, a regular viewer of the show and listening to our radio show. Mm-hmm. He asked the question: Is doctor, is there a difference between a serial killer and a serial rapist? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. You want to? Can yeah. we have the difference, please? Sure. Um, well, a serial killer would actually kill their victims, where serial rapists don't necessarily have to, although I understand the question because a lot of um, serial killers also rape their victims. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then and there, you know, there's, some, there's something to the act of taking one's life. And when you look at different serial killers and you look at their bios, um, mm-hmm. they have a sense of practice. They may have actually yeah. had fantasized about it earlier on. They may have actually had some type of uh, what, what, what would be referred to as play um, yeah. in terms of role playing, maybe in early adolescence into mid adolescence. And then there's the commit, uh, there's the committing of the crime itself. Um, yeah. Well, I have Interesting. A, I have a question as well. Why, why would they choose like to uh, kill uh, the serial killer would choose more to, to kill children rather than adults. Why would they choose more of that of children? Again, the answer here would be uh, multifactorial. There could be several reasons. And again, here we are. And welcome to psychiatry. There's never a simple explanation for behavior, all human behavior. Oh boy. Including <laughs> pathologic behavior. Yeah. Right. So uh, children, we could, we could come from a psychological viewpoint. Uh, it may be because they're stunted in their development. And yeah. they become fixated at a particular time during their developmental period. Maybe it was because of bullying. 
Yeah. Uh, and that might actually inform why children then are the objects of their aggression. Um, or it may be a present day thing um, uh, along the lines of what a cognitive behavioral therapist uh, yeah. or clinician may focus on. And maybe children are easier in terms of uh, abducting and therefore um, being their victim. So uh, again, uh, multiple reasons why yeah. uh, two examples uh, provided here, stunted growth. Well, I, I love that explanation. You know, we heard from the doctor. Now let's hear from the serial killer himself. Let's take a listen to this one. Special thanks and gratitude to Inside Edition for the use of this clip. His brutal attacks. I didn't particularly care for people. In a rare interview, Ramirez refused to discuss his own crimes, but had this to say about serial killers. A serial killer comes about by circumstances and like a, a recipe, poverty, drugs, child abuse. These things, you know, are, contribute to a person, uh, to a person's frustration and anger. And, uh, and uh, at some point in life, he explodes. Perhaps for Richard Ramirez, that anger and frustration turned to rage, which he in turn took out on his victims. His kill Finish that chore. Why on earth would you have hurt those people? Why did you kill those people? Very interesting. I cannot answer that at this time. Very interesting. Very, very interesting reaction. He did the same thing John Wayne Gacy did. They smiled and and gave the colloquial, you know, for lack of better words, no comment. Uh, he was happy about it. He was he smiled yeah. about it. Oh yes. That's why I said, look at his reaction. Mm-hmm. On in contrast, doctor, take a look at this. I'm all right. I'm all right with it. How? I'm all right with it, but like I said, remember and tell, let them know that I know that the cops knew who I was after Richard Mallory died. I left prints everywhere and they covered it up and let me kill the rest of those guys to turn me into a serial killer. I know they did because I was no professional serial killer or anything, or murderer or whatever you want to call it, you know. Wasn't special. So, I was doing. Eileen, how, I did how, some sloppy work, you know. And I left how room. have you prepared yourself for tomorrow morning? How, I'm all right with it. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Hey, I was tortured at BCI. They had they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Sonic. And every pressure. time I was trying to write something, I they. And I, I think they had some kind of eye in the cell, I'm not sure, but every time I started writing something, it went up higher. So I'm thinking that probably had the TV rigged. The TV or the mirror or something was rigged. They got a huge satellite on the compound. After they put the huge satellite on the compound, it could have been either rigged to the TV set or the mirror or something, because the electrician, when he put the mirror on the wall, he said, doesn't that look like a computer? The back of it, and they stuck it to the wall. Do you think what? This was five minutes later. By the way, this was just four yeah. hours. Seven people in one oh, year. Oh well. Oh well. But why not say now? Because I'm 
out of retaliation for taking my life like this and getting rich off it all these years in, in total pathological lying. Yeah, thanks a lot. I lost my fucking life because of it. Couldn't even get a fair trial. Couldn't even get a fair investigation or nothing. Couldn't even have my appeals right. You sabotaged my ass society and the cops and the system. A raped woman got executed. It was used for books and movies and shit. Ladder climbs, re-election, everything else. I got a big finger in all your faces. Thanks a lot. You're inhuman, you're an inhumane bunch of fucking living bastards and bitches. And you're gonna get your asses nuked in the end. And pretty soon it's coming. 2019, a rock's supposed to hit you anyhow. You're all gonna get nuked. You don't take fucking human life like this and just sabotage and rip it apart like Jesus on the cross and say thanks a lot for all the fucking money I made off of you. And not care about a human being and the truth being told. Now I know what Jesus was going through. That was the best. Wow. Now I knew what Jesus was going through. <laughs> First of all, here's a woman who killed seven men. She was a, a street prostitute. She hooked up with her lesbian lover. They, they go on a killing spree across the country over several states on the East Coast. And she's talking about retribution. And she's talking about taking her life. How sad it is to take her life. Are you fucking Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me for real? I had to show Dr. Tobiah this clip because I was chomping at the bit today. Almost jumped through my computer when I saw it. I'm surprised she didn't cry. Like, oh, 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 you took my whole life, you know, kind of thing. Cry for her? No, not a chance. No. Not a chance. <laughs> so talk to me about this, the most fascinating of the serial killer. By the way, on record, the, the first and only female serial killer to be executed. There is another on death row as we speak. In the U.S. Say again, Doc. In the U.S., right? In the U.S., yes, sir. Uh, yeah, first, the first American, yes. Yeah, because I'm, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Bathory, actually, uh, with her 650, um, is not yeah. connected towards that, right? Yes, sir. All right, so, wow. Um, where to start with Warnos? Um, you know, I think what we see there, first of all, unlike the Ramirez clip, obviously, where he's smiling, um, there, there is no defense against her anger. So her anger is raw uh, and uh, I think fairly evident, no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the content of what she is saying, uh, there's a lot of rationalization. Um, again, we'll, we'll, we'll call that or refer to that as blame. But I think as a psychologist would look at this, a lot of rationalization in terms of the defense no doubt about that. And, right. you know, when when she starts talking about the sonic pressure being in place since 1997, I think it was. Yes, sir. Um, she begin, she really begins to demonstrate uh, disorganized thought. And, you know, I just wonder if uh, that could have been just the stress of the interview. Uh, but certainly if we see it uh, become a pervasive pattern of behavior, there might be more going on there. So that's certainly something to investigate. I'm not really familiar with... Um, um, uh, EW's case um, to actually furnish such a diagnosis. Obviously, I didn't get to uh, interview her. Uh, but that's where my mind goes. So definitely rationalization. Um, 
raw anger. Now, certainly, unlike Ramirez, who has some defense against anger, where you see yeah. the actual opposite of it, he's smiling, if not laughing. Um, and then certainly a lot of disorganization in terms of her thought process. Uh, I am uh, quite a bit familiar with her case. I'm very familiar with it, in fact. Um, the idea of outside influences uh, affecting her brain is not new. She uh, claimed early on that she was implanted with a, a, for lack of a better word, a remote control device that was telling her mind to do things. She also claimed to have been controlled by the police, that they had her under surveillance and they were you know, manipulating her movement. You heard her say in the clip that the, she blames them for her becoming a serial killer. That's a pretty ballsy statement to make. <laughs> you know, it's also quite irrational. Right. Nobody made you kill but you. Right. What, you're, so, what you're describing there is called thought insertion, um, which itself is an example of a delusion. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a fixed belief that is not reality-based. And her specific delusion uh, is referred to as thought insertion. Um, and at the basis, if you want to get into psychology 101, is uh, a, a defense referred to as projection. So that, yeah. that taboo impulse that she has is projected onto someone else, and that comes across as her playing the blame game. I should tell people, and the people who watch the show know, I am a licensed and certified life facilitation coach. Believe it or not, doctor, yes, I'm a life coach. Scary thought, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Do you think that maybe... But at putting... least I don't have doctor in front of me. <laughs> Do you think that maybe uh, Dr. Yeah, yeah. Tobias, do you think that maybe putting them on medication might help a little bit along the way, uh, along with therapy? So, um, again, as a doctor, you, you always think people can be habilitated. And to the extent where we can diagnose an illness, specifically a mental illness, sure, um, there's reliable data in the literature to suggest that um, biopsychosocial treatment plans can actually help. Uh, so. Yeah. Therapy would certainly be part of it. And, you know, to the extent that there, there may be a form of psychosis here, to the extent that there is a delusion, sure. Um, I think any MD would consider the prescribing of an antipsychotic to focus on the delusion. Now, whether that would have changed her course of illness and resulted in a different outcome, uh, that's anybody's guess. Because I, I work in healthcare and a part of healthcare, I help uh, make appointments for behavioral health patients. And one of my patients that I talked to, uh, she also was saying that her dad put cameras all around the house. Her dad would be able to see and hear things that she would do. And uh, she had to whisper because she had to make appointments to see her uh, doctor, her therapist. And she had to hurry up and make the appointment because her dad would see that she was doing that. But she had to hurry up to have her friend come pick her up, that they were going to be going on a shopping spree or for something like that. So her dad wouldn't know that she was going to go see a therapist. And she had to get away and finally she did thank goodness she's up upstate now in another state and she says you had to be real quiet real quiet and i and her mom had passed away like six months ago and i don't know if it was her losing her mom that got her into that kind of a state but one time her dad caught her being on the phone and i had to pretend i was something else uh, somebody else that she was talking to yeah and i mean it certainly sounds like 
um, struggling with a, uh, an illness that would be right now categorized in the schizophrenia spectrum and perhaps other psychotic disorders chapter of the DSM-5 published by the American Psychiatric Association. Mm. Uh, and again, we always think biopsychosocial, but the biological or somatic treatments available would include a class of medications called the antipsychotic meds. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, the point prevalence of schizophrenia in the U.S. is about 1% or so, maybe 1% to 2%. The vast majority of individuals are not dangerous. Uh, while there is a point prevalence of violence for that particular demographic, uh, 13 to 15 percent, yes, uh, that's higher than the general population, but it's still only 15 percent. Uh, yeah. It's not 100 percent. So um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a risk for violence, um, uh, but in as much as it is an illness, specifically a mental illness, um, an MD is going to say it's treatable, uh, it's yeah. manageable. Uh, and um, part of that biopsychosocial treatment plan to get back at your original question, sure. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of MDs would pull out the prescription pad. And, and think I, I want to get into something like that, but I don't want to do the medication part. I want to be able to listen to them and help them. And mm -hmm. I actually want to go to school and be, get into therapy and help people because yeah. I think that I would do some really very well with that. Mm -hmm. And, and they've been told that I can. So. Yep. And what the literature suggests, again, evidence-based practice is that psychotherapy that specifically focuses on neutralizing stress for the individual, especially within the family unit, has been found to be helpful. So the important oh, is there. Right? Dr. Uh, uh, Allison Matos says, hi, Uncle Anthony. He's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, let me ask you, I, I have a couple of medica med medications I want to talk to you about. Um. We've talked about on previous episodes certain medications that will uh, cease you from smoking but that have psychological impact. Yep. Medications like Wellbutrin, uh, Bupropion, and uh, Chantix. Chantix is one of the ones that I heard yeah. about that. <laughs> I was actually on Chantix years ago when it first came out, and I had to stop taking it, doctor, because I thought I was God. Yeah, it was a, it was dangerous for me. Mm -hmm. So I smoked until I was ready to stop, which is now four years now without a cigarette. So talk to me about the link between, and I don't understand it, the link between smoking cessation and psychotic drugs. Yep. Now, uh, both medications that you named, the bupropion and the Chantix, work by different mechanisms. So there's different answers each year. Uh, okay. But there's one common thread, and uh, this is going to sound like uh, I'm, you know, I'm giving up on it, but I have to be, you know, full disclosure. Um, as a practicing, uh, practicing psychiatrist, we simply do not know uh, enough of the brain. So there's a, there's a big I don't know here, and I'm very honest with the very people that I prescribe these medications to that we don't know the full extent how they work. Uh, but yeah. what we do know is published in the literature, and as a practicing physician, um, I, I try to keep the prescribing these medications evidence-based. Uh, and that's my role, is to make sure my patients understand, in the simplest of terms, what the literature says uh, in terms of how effective these medications are. Uh, now, you know, Chantix works at the receptor level, the receptor antagonist, uh, but it does have a warning uh, that if you feel a change of mood, if you feel suicidal thoughts, of course, you were to stop that medication immediately and call your health provider. Uh, Wabitrin, which is bupropion, uh, works by a different mechanism. Uh, this is a this is a, a medication that's also classified as an antidepressant. Uh, so individuals who are depressed, whether they smoke or not, 
have an indication perhaps to start this medication right. as well. And as a dopamine norepinephrine reuptake blocker, yeah. uh, by blocking the reuptake and therefore the clearance of these medications, uh, you actually have these uh, neurotransmitters, these chemical messengers in the brain last longer. Uh, and one of them, dopamine, when at uh, too high a level, can actually induce psychosis. So people can actually have perceptual disturbances and uh, even these fixed beliefs that might be referred to as delusions. Now, the incidence of that is rare, but it could happen. I want to talk to you actually about that. It's a great segue into where I'm going next. In Europe, um, the practice and art of psychiatry is generally standardized in that there is a, a set protocol for a set series of symptoms. In the U.S., it is not generally standardized yet. Uh, it's still a matter of trial and error with medications. Various doctors have various approaches to treating patients. Um, for example, you know, Sigmund Freud, for example, treated his patients differently than someone like um, perhaps Anthony Tobias. Okay. Um, uh, my understanding, though, you is mean, Freud said. Thank you. My understanding is that Freud found uh, everything sexualized. He, sure. Yeah. He was, yeah. and well, that's a whole nother show. <laughs> We're not going to go down that rabbit hole tonight. But, but my question for you uh, is a serious one. Will there ever be a time, do you say, that the U.S. will have a standardized a set of protocols for psychiatric medicines. So, so we hope so, right? Um, right now, what we do have working for us are the published treatment guidelines by the American Psychiatric Association. You can find them readily online. Mm -hmm. uh, however, they're guidelines. Um, it's, uh, it's not a cookbook approach for our patients. So the art of becoming a physician, which is those four years of training to become a psychiatrist, that subspecialty, um, and that's what, of course, I'm trying to recruit Ellie into right now. Um, <laughs> after, after you got me hooked. <laughs> right? um, yeah, is applying those published guidelines to the person that's sitting in front of you. Um, and that's the art. And I'm, I'm not sure we're ever going to get to a, um, a more validated cookbook approach there. So um, those four years of residency training uh, do have milestones that are published by the ACGME. So there mm -hmm. is some structure there. Uh, but ultimately, it's an art. And, um, you know, the accredited institutions, uh, similar to ours here at Rutgers, um, has a residency training program in place where individuals learn how to take those published guidelines, that is, uh, those guidelines published by the American Psychiatric Association, and right. learn how to apply them to a person, that person sitting in front of you that particular day. Doctor, why is psychiatric care so expensive? Oh, great question. Um, that, that one, I'm going to defer to my colleagues uh, up in Washington, or for me, down in Washington. We'll get the third-party payers involved to give us a true answer there. I don't think, I don't think Mr. Biden has an answer. For no, well, I can tell you right now, with my insurance that I have through my work, I, if I go see my psychiatrist, it's $40 every visit. With my, but that's still kind of expensive. You know what that, You're 45. getting off easy, because I, well, no I know a guy... I literally know a guy right now. Mm -hmm. He's an actor. At $1,500 a pop. Oh, yeah. It depends who you I'm see. Not, also. I'm not even kidding you. Yeah. 
it also depends on dollars every time he goes to see mm-hmm. a shrink. Oh, definitely. By the way, is that a colloquial term, shrink? So you know, if, if I call you and say, you know, the doctor Tobias, you know, um, you're you're my new shrink now. <laughs> you know, as long as the money's green, does it really matter what I call you? Not at all. Uh, you know, I, nope. I, take, I take it as a term of endearment. Uh, again, mm-hmm. part of that art is being able to take very, very, very complex individuals mm-hmm. and situations and shrink shrink them down mm-hmm. to core components where it makes obvious sense in terms of what to do next. So uh, I yeah. think once perhaps a derogatory term, I actually take as a term of endearment. Oh, yes. Beautiful. Dr. Diani, in a couple of weeks, I'd like to have you back. Um, we are going to discuss Heaven's Gate, the Manson family. Mm-hmm. We are going to discuss um, the Jones, Jim Jones, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the cult of Jim Jones. Yes. Uh, the People's Temple cult. I forgot how to brain fart. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to discuss, we'll have a four-part series, actually, oh, yeah. on these various cults. Um We've taken four of the deadliest cults, and Amelia and I are going to dedicate a one-hour show to each cult. Oh, uh, are you available to join us, uh, Ellie? Uh, yeah, actually, my thesis was. I on. hope so, because Anthony <laughs> just volunteered you with his yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not going to let her get away. So right? <laughs> email me. I will put you in touch with her. I'll get you all our contact information. Absolutely. Great. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, I'll tell you what, Amelia, any yes. any questions before we let the, yes. the good doctors go? Yes, absolutely. Because of the way our office, the way we do is the, uh, the, the therapist or psychiatrist, whoever interviews them first, we do the intake first. We do not give them any medication. That's a standardized thing. And I think that's the best thing to do because we don't want to just say, here you go. You're out the door. Thank you. Because they're coming from different states. And I think that's the best thing to do. Am I correct in that? Yeah, that, that, that's the approach. I mean, yes. and what, um, and again, uh, Ellie will hopefully shake her head and make sure that I'm telling the truth here. What we teach routinely is that irrespective of what we, we refer to as the chief complaint or the chief concern is, the, the starting point is to always say that this is normal behavior until it's not. So um, not even provide therapy. We're going to consider yeah. things to be normal. And then after we get the patient's story, we decide to maybe move off that point. And if, if that is the case, uh, then we go with non-invasive approaches first. So that is an absolute yeah. correct, uh, correct statement. That is the stepwise progression. And Good. Roseanne Tobia says, Tobia runs with phobia. <laughs> you knew she was going to say that. And I, I ain't I touching tell. that one. Ain't no, ain't no way I'm touching that one. No. When, when, when um, you know, way, way back in the day when she decided to take that as her last name, she made sure that she had something to go to to make sure. There you go. <laughs> Uh, Wavy says, why do some serial killers like Night Stalker never take the blame for the kill? No, quite the opposite, Wavy. They actually did take credit. The Night Stalker did take credit. The problem is we don't know if there was one Night Stalker or multiple because Arthur Lee Allen, who they generally believe was the Night Stalker, the DNA didn't match up with him. That's Zodiac, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, sir. Yes, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's an interesting. I'll tell you what, you're you're a really fascinating guy. I'd love to have you back, Doctor, because um, I'm yeah. going to steal your colleague in a couple of weeks. Yeah, because I was going to talk to her as well. Because uh, what what uh, the field that you're getting into is sounds very very interesting to me, and that's something that I would want to get into as well. You want to be the test patient for her? I could arrange <laughs> that. Okay. 
he yeah, probably I will be. <laughs> I know Anthony Tobier, you know? Oh, yeah. It's a great connection. It's all good. Yeah, I could be her test patient. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, folks. We got a, uh, we got a hell of a couple of weeks coming up. We are continuing our investigation into the uh, top 10 unsolved murders in the world. Um, next week, we're going to take a short break. We are going to bring back for one week only the writer's room. We will have Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne mm -hmm. and D.W. Emer, the author of the brand new book, The Satan Gene. Dr. Tobiah, have a ball with that one. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what. I got see, see, I got these authors that come on the show, Doc. I got mm -hmm. a, a shelf full of books over oh, here. Yeah. And I read this stuff and I wonder what kind of twisted mind writes this shit. <laughs> I yeah. think I'm I'm gonna have to show to, his uh, book. Can we show him his book real quick? Well, no, you know what I'm gonna do, Amelia? <laughs> I'm gonna uh -huh. send Alistair and Tamara Dr. Doctor uh, Tobias phone number uh -huh. and, and have because they need some help them too. I'll, I'll talk about uh, Mr. Emer's book. <laughs> oh, Mr. No, I don't know him yet. We, this no, is the first we don't time we're talking yet. to the him. Book? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's a big book, six hundred pages. Well, I'll tell you what. Chapters. It's been fascinating having Doctor Anthony Tobias on the on the on the phone on the show with us, <laughs> yes. along with Doctor Ellie. You got to get used to it now, yes. Doctor Ellie Diani. Ellie, she's gonna be my doctor I'm gonna too. break this kid in. I'm gonna break her. She's a doctor now. She's gonna yes. look third year. Yep. Third year. Oh, yes. You better get used to that DR in front of your name, kid. <laughs> oh, absolutely. All get right. that white coat for on. For <laughs> Dr. Tobias, for Dr. Uh, Ellie Diani, for a Pitbull Chapman. Yes. <laughs> I am the mad dog. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.